Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Richard A. Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Originalism as Originally Understood, The Uncertain Legacy of Justice Scalia. And it was recorded on April 18th, 2016. Well, I have to completely rewrite my speech. Um, I didn't know where I was going to start, but Tom made the remark that I teach Roman law, and there was supposed to be a little bit of titter associated about that particular remark. Uh, but let me tell you, it is a genuine passion in my life. I'm teaching it right now. And I also am very proud to say that of all the seminars taught at the University of Chicago, this one has the longest waiting list of close to 100 students. Now, the question is, why do I mention that to you here? Uh, because if I'm going to talk about the defects in the jurisprudence of Justice Nino Scalia, it all stems from the fact that he does not understand the principles of judicial interpretation as they were developed by the Roman law scholars who dealt with analogous problems in private law starting as early as about uh, the birth of the common era and reaching its great maturity in the works of Gaius written at about 160 AD. Uh, and if you don't understand those principles, you will not understand the Constitution. And the reason you will not understand the Constitution is that you can trace the linear development that takes place uh, from classical principles through people like James Madison, who himself was a great classical scholar. And in effect, these guys turned out to be the draftsmen of the United States Constitution. And if you go back and you read the Federalist Papers, you will find an enormous number of references to various kinds of Roman authorities of one sort or another. And it's not just a question of abstract relationships of that sort. If you look at some of our great institutions, a republic is, of course, a Roman term, meaning race publici, those things that pertain to the public, an opposition to democracy, mob rule of one form or another. And if you think of the institutions that we have, like the Senate, they are directly lifted from various kinds of Roman institutions, including the Senate. And so it turns out that to having this sense of historical continuity turns out to be extremely important because if you're trying to figure out how you interpret a great doctrine, uh, what you have to do in looking at this stuff is understand the mindset of the people who had done this. And Justice Scalia, to return to him, has a very different education from myself. And why do I say that since the fact we had been very good friends for a period of about 40 years? He went to Harvard in the 1950s, the late 1950s, graduated in 1960 as a member of one of the most extraordinary classes that the Harvard Law School has ever produced. I studied law starting in 1964. I'm seven years younger than he is. And I went off to Oxford, and the first course that I ever studied was with a man named Alan Watson, still alive today, and it was the Roman law of contract. And so we have one person who's trying to figure out what the contract of emptio benditio is about, that's buying and selling, and another fellow who's trying to make peace with uh, what was the single most important transformation in the American constitutional history, namely the Constitutional Revolution of 1937. Since I don't think you're all that interested in the law of sales, what I'll do is I'll talk about this 1937 revolution and then show how it ties into the jurisprudence of Nino Scalia on both its enormous positive size and also, I think, its serious intellectual deficit. American Constitution was put together in 1787, and one of the reasons why it survives 
is that there was actually a clear theory behind the way mode of its operation. And I'm just going to mention two parts of that theory right now, although there are many other pieces to the puzzle. The first was the clear appreciation of the fact that when you're trying to put together a federal system, you have to try to create separate domains, one for the federal government and one for the states, and try to reduce the interaction that takes place with concurrent jurisdiction. And so when you're dealing with the federal government, uh, what you find out that it has key powers that are surely needed, and these are powers to raise the debt, to provide for the common defense and for the general welfare, all of the United States, not for the individual states. And I mention this right now because when you heard John Cogan's presentation, you heard about the huge number of transfer payments that have taken place. And one of the reasons why they were allowed to take place is that the limitations on federal expenditures that are embodied in these particular words were systematically ignored and rejected by the 1937 constitutional revolution. In addition, at that time, the Federalist model was rejected, and so the federal government now had jurisdiction over about everything that took place either within the state or across state lines. So essentially what you did, and this goes back to something that Steve Haber talked about this morning, is you had this huge amount of centralized power in Washington under a system which was even more devilish than the one that he contemplated, because at the same time that the federal government was given these massive powers, uh, all restrictions on what state governments can do, except to the extent that they were overridden by the federal government, were also systematically removed and eliminated. And this took place through the transformation of the Commerce Clause, uh, which said Congress will have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And this is now interpreted subtly to mean Congress could do whatever it wants with respect to the domestic economy of the United States. Not an exact parallel. The second feature of the earlier pre-1937 revolution was in fact the notion that economic liberties of individual persons to trade, to buy, sell, and barter, and so forth, had explicit constitutional protection, except to the extent that they were limited by the police power, chiefly on matters of health on the one hand and safety on the other. And in a very short period, uh, between say 1935 and 1937, each and every one of these restrictions were transformed so that what you did is you got a broader financial base with greater taxing and spending powers, extensive regulation over just about everything, and relatively minimal protection associated with economic liberties, which meant that the state formation of cartels like the National Labor Relations Act was now perfectly okay. Young Scalia, 21 years of age, enters the Harvard Law School in 1957. And the great intellectual agenda of that particular time was to figure out why it is that this particular system made sense and how it was that you started to implement it. The annoying star on the horizon, which seemed to upset all of these rather benevolent situations, was the very troublesome case of Brown v. Board of Education, which introduced a huge federal presence on segregation after we had heard that Congress and the states ought to be supreme on everything that they did. And there is no question that when Scalia went through this particular world, he had the following kind of attitude. I think that the older criticisms, he said, of the pre-1937 court, often called the Lochner Court, uh, referring to a 1905 case in which the court struck down a 60-hour maximum hour laws in New York State, he said, we have to basically understand that it's all legitimate. And so what he did is he said, we cannot have a super legislature. 
And then what you start to do, if you're somebody like Scalia working in the Frankfurterian mode, that's F. Felix Frankfurter, is you start to figure out exactly what it is that went wrong which led to this super-legislature. And it turns out he puts together two ideas that don't quite coexist. And one of these is the notion of judicial restraint, which stands for the proposition that on major political and social issues are the appropriate branches of government to deal with them, are the legislature in the first instance and then the executive power in the second, and the judiciary intervenes, if at all, only in those cases where there are extreme deviations from appropriate constitutional norms. And so that's the one notion that he has. And the second notion that he has is the notion of originalism. And the way in which this was construed, uh, in accordance to Justice Scalia, was that when you're reading the particular terms of the Constitution, what happens is you must think about the way they were understood in terms of their ordinary public meaning at the time that these words were adopted and incorporated into the Constitution. And the question that you immediately have to ask is whether or not these two particular propositions cohere one to another or whether there is some kind of difficulty with them. For Scalia, his concern about the two things being together only strengthened in his years after the Harvard Law School as he started to watch the progression of the Warren Court dealing with a wide range of issues that came up, making decisions which may be admirable on political grounds, but politically, it seems, or rather judicially, were surely made in some sense out of whole cloth. And so you start seeing the reapportionment cases, very dicey to think that these are in fact equal protection violations, but they are systematic social injustices. Then you get the privacy decision in Griswold about the right to use contraceptive in marriage, and by the time you're done, you can use them anywhere, and this is, well, we don't know where it is in the Constitution, but we know it's somewhere. There's a penumbra out there which will protect us when we need it. And then you start getting, of course, to the abortion cases where you have exactly the same kind of thing. And there are a number of other very aggressive Warren Court decisions. And to Scalia, the two positions absolutely cohere one to another. If you believed in judicial restraint, you would say it is not the function of the courts to decide whether or not contraception should be used or to deal with reapportionment or certainly to legalize abortion. And in fact, if you look for the original public meaning of the various texts, and you try to find out whether there's any particular warrant for this stuff, there's absolutely nothing there which you would call uh, similar to the kinds of authorizations that you have, for example, having to deal with uh, the prohibition on billows of tangers and something of the sort. And so Scalia is very comfortable in treating these two things as though they more or less cohere one with another. And in effect, what he's mainly concerned about is not how you do interpret the Constitution in cases to which it does apply. He's trying to make sure that you don't interpret the Constitution to cases where it doesn't apply. And this pressure only intensifies as you start going forward. Uh, one of the early cases that was quite interesting was a case called Bowers and Hardwick in 1986. And the question there whether or not homosexual sodomy was in fact something which was protected under the Constitution, under the Due Process Clause. At the time, there was a very learned opinion by Justice White which explained all sorts of reasons why in fact these rules were perfectly understandable under the police power dealing with either health on the one hand or more commonly with respect to morals, and they should therefore be preserved. And then later on, Justice Kennedy, first in a case called Lawrence against Texas, 
decides that, in fact, you can't criminalize the behavior. And then in the Obergefell case a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court decides, lo and behold, that the Equal Protection Clause now authorizes every state to recognize same-sex marriage. And so somebody who has the Scalia joinder of these two particular notions together, this all becomes essentially absolutely indefensible. And I have to say, whatever your views are on the various merits of these issues, and I think there's very little taste today to enforce the criminal law against homosexual behavior, I think there's even relatively small opposition against same-sex marriage being legalized. There's huge opposition against requiring, I think, various clerics to perform ceremonies against their religious situation. The Scalia construct of judicial restraint on the one hand and original public meaning on the other hand seems to work fairly well. So the question is, are there any gremlins in paradise? That is, which would connect you to a view of the world which says, you know, uh, the originalism doesn't take you all the way. And let me now talk about what I think to be the weaknesses in the Scalia condition and then start to illustrate them. Uh, during the Reagan era, you heard that there was, in fact, a market contraction in the size of the expansion of the welfare state. It is not a coincidence that exactly during that period of time, there were a large number of people, including myself, who had taken very strong, aggressive stances against the proposition that the power of the government to regulate unconditionally was, in fact, something which was in the Constitution, whether you talked either about federal jurisdiction and the commerce power on the one hand, or whether you talked about private property rights on the other. And so what happens is in 1983 or so, 1984, the Cato Institute, a libertarian shop, decides to have a conference on the scope of federal power. And the keynote speaker is a man named Antonin Scalia, not at this time a justice of the United States Supreme Court, but he's a member of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And he gives the keynote of the speech talking about the relationship between uh, judicial restraint on the one hand and original public meaning on the other hand. And I'm sitting there as the first speaker on the first panel, not sure what I'm going to say. This is a very common condition in my life. And what happens is I listen to Scalia talk and I said, well, whatever I was going to say isn't worth saying. What I really want to do is to show that he is wrong insofar as he thinks that the connection exists between judicial restraint on the one hand and original meaning on the other hand. And so I get up there and I turn my first panel performance into a mock debate with uh, Judge Scalia, as he was at the time, and argue exactly the opposite situation. If you start looking at the particular terms of the Constitution and try to figure out what their original public meaning is, it turns out that they require you to have an extraordinarily expansive view of individual rights and a rather narrow view of public power the exact inverse of the 1937 synthesis, which expanded public power and contracted, essentially, individual rights. Now, how do you get there? Well, you start with a word like commerce. Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, among the several states, and with the Indian tribes. And then you substitute in the word manufacture and agriculture within the states, and then what you discover is that Congress has the power to regulate the manufacture of various goods with foreign nations, which means we could tell the British what kind of agriculture quotas they ought to have with respect to their own land. And we could do the same thing with respect to the Indian tribes. Nobody believes that, 
And in fact, the settled jurisprudence throughout the 19th century on strict originalist grounds was that commerce essentially covered those cases of transactions that went across state lines of one form or another. So it would cover interstate railroads, interstate telephone connections, and so forth, but it would not cover local telephony, local bus services, or anything of the sort. Could that line be drawn? Well, if you were determined to destroy it, the answer is no. But if you wanted to keep it up, you could. And in fact, as late as the 1980s, when you were talking about the regulation of the phone systems, what they did is they segregated those things which were subject to federal regulation because they dealt with interstate coals, and they were subject to one system of regulation, and the rest of the system was subject to state regulation under entirely different principles that the state so defined it. So if you wanted to keep the line in place, you could surely do it. Do you want to keep the line in place? Well, if you care about federalism as an ideal, one of the things that you always want to do to limit government is to make sure that you do not have a competition between two governments in a world in which the government which imposes the strictest regulation on somebody is always the one that gets to call the shots. And so you don't want to have a system under the financial laws where if you have a relatively conservative central government, then Elliot Spitzer could come along and wreck everything that goes on on Wall Street. And if you want a more modern illustration with respect to global warming, you watch the way in which Eric Schneiderman, his unworthy successor to that particular office, is playing exactly the same game with respect to ExxonMobil and a bunch of other people. And so as a good originalist, you would like to undo these things. So it is with respect to economic liberties. If it turns out that there's no protection of economic liberties, it's an open invitation to cartels. And every single program from the 1930s that got through was a cartel maintenance program of one sort or another. Whether it was with respect to agriculture, whether it was with respect to labor, whether it was with respect to motor vehicles, the only reasons the progressives needed national regulation was to make sure that competition could be stifled. And if you put these two things against the original version of limited governments from 1787, it's very clear that they're absolutely wrong. Now, what's the difficulty that Scalia had, and many people have, is what do you do with past mistakes that have worked themselves within the system? And so he described himself as a faint-hearted originalism, meaning, in effect, he was going to be an originalist going forward, but he was going to believe in stare decisive going backwards, stare decisive of that principle which says, let the precedent stand, we don't want to overturn it. And so there turns out to be a really complicated fissure inside the theory about the way in which you work for these past stuff. Now, this became even more acute when you started to talk about property rights, not only with respect to economic liberties, but also with respect to land use regulations and so forth under the takings clause. And about the time that Scalia and I had this particular debate, I was in the final stages of publishing a book called Takings, which had as one of its modest corollaries that if you understood what the Constitution and the takings clause were about, the entire New Deal was unconstitutional. And this, shall we say, earned me a certain bit of wrath at the particular time. I cannot tell you the names that I was called by a variety of people, but it's one thing to be abused, and it's another thing to be refuted. And one of the things that I like to say is if 15 people believe that it's incumbent upon each of them to refute you, chances are they each believe that the other 14 are wrong, and my view is all 15 
are in fact incorrect. So, you know, you have this very stark opposition between two people on the conservative side, one of whom essentially is a judicial constraint guy, and the other turns out to be an originalist guy who thinks, no, if you look at the ordinary public meaning of these words, they're very vast in terms of their implications. Private property is our most comprehensive social institution. Don't tell me it means the exclusive right to possess land when it covers a lot more than that. So that's the first difficulty associated with the originalist treatment of Justice Scalia. The second one I think is every bit as important, and it has to do with the following question. How do you interpret text? And what Justice Scalia did was he thought that the whole business was essentially finding original public meaning. And on this point, he is half right. You cannot be a decent originalist if, in fact, you think it's appropriate to disregard original pu public meaning in the places where it applies. And so you don't want people coming forward and you say, you know, 1787, these guys actually thought that competition between the states might have been important, but we know better now, and so commerce has to mean manufacture, otherwise we can't put our big fancy social programs into place. Uh, that's a kind of purposivism which is appropriate if you're trying to urge a constitutional amendment, but it is utterly impermissible as a way of beating this helpless document written by many dead people and into something that it was not. And so what you do is you then start to abuse the dead people. And Jeffrey Tubin, one of our worst constitutional writers, wrote this dreadful piece in The New Republic in which he says, why should we pay attention to these bewigged gentlemen who knew nothing about modern circumstances? Well, maybe it's because they knew something about political theory, something which is surely lacking on the part of modern people. And in fact, if you go back and look at the earlier arguments, to the extent that there were national interests that required national regulation, like uh, interstate telephony and transportation and so forth, there was not a single originalist on the Supreme Court who said that commerce gives you the power to regulate sailboats, but since steamboats were not around at the time, you have no power to regulate them. There was nobody who was so silly to put in artificial limitations of that sort. Now, when you get to the other stuff on private property, as I said, it's our most pervasive institution. And then the question is, what does it mean to take it? And it's quite clear here that Scalia was very uncomfortable with the general Roman rule of construction, which says, in any case where you have a core protection, you have to be worried about a state that is going to try to circumvent what's going on. So the classic Roman case of this in the private law situation was they used the word akitera saying that one could not kill the slave or hurt animal of somebody else, and then somebody gets a bright idea of poisoning them, and you could force it down their throats, well that's kind of like killing, and then you say, well I'm just going to set it in front of them and let them drink it under mistake, and it's not covered by the statute, so therefore it's reason to allow people to poison people by deception. And they said, no, Causa Mortis Restari was their manifesto, one that you should take to heart, which means you furnish somebody with a cause of death, we will treat it just as though you've killed it. Well, if it turns out you can't take property, you do exactly the same kinds of rules. If I can't take it, then I can't blow it up. And if I can't take it, then I can't prevent you from entering it, even though I don't enter it to himself. So that the protection that you're giving to private property turns out to be pretty bought on the direct regulation side. And then you have to be very careful about how you can tax this stuff, because the selective tax imposed upon one person that gives benefits to everybody else is, in fact, just like a taking of that property and its redistribution to other people. So the circumvention stuff means that this clause has to have immense application under provisions that were well understood and accepted in the constitutional framework as this framework existed back in 1787 or 1789. 
But then if you go back and you look at this Roman stuff, um, what happens is they say, well, you can't kill somebody. They mean you can't kill them ever. No, that's crazy. Uh, can't unlawfully kill them. Well, what does that mean? And then immediately what you do is you say, well, if you're killing somebody in self-defense, um, sure, it's a killing, but it's a justified killing. And then, in fact, you say, well, it's justified to kill them in self-defense, but you can't use excessive and disproportionate force. Well, what about under mistake? And you get this whole elaborate development of the series of defenses on terms that are nowhere written in the statutes of that time. And the same thing happens under the Constitution. And so I could remember having debates with Justice Scalia in which I said, well, you know, you haven't really accounted for the police power because there's no original public meaning of that term in the Constitution because it nowhere appears there. But this term was introduced into constitutional adjudication from the latest, the 1820s, and has been a staple everywhere. So either you explain to stand why it's there or you don't have a theory of interpretation. And so what you now need to do is to either pretend that when you kill somebody with an ax you haven't killed them because we're allowed to stop it, or you say we have to have justifications for government takings because they're dealing with the health and the safety of various public, which is the correct way in which to work this situation. So now you see what the difficulty is with respect to originalism to the extent that it exclusively directs its attention to the kinds of words that are written on the page, it ignores the sort of cultural subtext which is necessarily involved in the interpretation of analogous statutes going back to very early times. And if I had more time to bore you, you could see exactly the same thing happened with medieval interpretations under the statute of Westminster from 1285. So you're not talking about real model stuff. Everybody understood that if you have a fundamental protection, you had to apply it to similar cases, and you had to have a theory as to what these were, and you had to have a theory of justifications for the way in which the government works. Now, is this a surprise to you? No. Um, most of you talk about the importance of contract, and we heard Steve Haber say, anyone can contract with anyone about anything. Well, most of the time when you enter into contract, you say, I'm going to sell you a bunch of wheat for $10 a barrel. But you don't talk about the sequence of delivery, you don't talk about the quality, you don't talk about the title. All of those things are in fact governed by implied terms of contract developed in the exact same way you have to do it under the Constitution. So there are rules which say, I don't have to deliver to you unless you're ready to pay me, and au contraire, that's the law of conditions. And then we have rules about whether or not the goods have to be suitable for service, that's the warranty of merchantability. And then we ask questions, do you own the stuff or does somebody else own it? No. Well, that turns out to be the warranties of title or the warranty against eviction. They're all in the common law, they're all in the Roman law of one form or another. They're not written anywhere. And so in order to do constitutional interpretation, you actually have to know private law. Helps to know the Roman law, helps to know the English law, it helps in virtually every given area. Because what is it that makes for a successful constitution? Essentially what you're trying to do is to impose a government upon a series of voluntary rules, all of which seem to work between ordinary individuals. And my four-word summary of the common law is force, no, cooperation, yes, and then there's 10% of the world which gives you all the difficulty because this particular phrase doesn't cover everything that you want to have, but it's the starting point. And so the theory of taxation and the theory of regulation is how can we manage to create a protective order so that when somebody takes, we can give the property back. How can we have a protective order so that if somebody doesn't perform on a contract, we can give some kind of remedy? And what you have to do is develop a system of taxation and a system of public institutions that enforces all of these rights 
with, and this is the key point, minimal distortions in the way in which the underlying system starts to work. And if you understand all of that, then all of the 19th century police power regulation statutes are remarkable in their sophistication because these guys actually had a very clear vision of what was going on and the things that they allowed, i.e. the antitrust laws against horizontal arrangements, are the things that you would want and the things that they prohibited, the cartelization of an industry, are the things that you wanted to get rid of. If you're doing originalism as a pure textual issue, you run out of gas when it comes to all the stuff on justifications and parallel cases. If you do originalism as it was originally done, it turns out that text is an absolutely essential part of the picture, but it's far from being the whole story. And so what happens is, and this will be my last point, when you let all of this stuff in, does this mean that you're now into the embrace of a living constitution where anybody can do anything they want for any particular reason, which of course was Justice Scalia's reason for being very worried about constitutional implication? And the answer to that question is no, not if you know how to do this particular game. And going back to the earlier precedents, all of the things that they were going to allow in are in fact the kinds of things that have been well established for 2,000 years. Uh, you're worried about duress, you're worried about force, you're worried about mistake, right? You're worried about conditions. All of these things are part and parcel of everybody's common law. And so the basic test you ask yourself is, are you doing the kind of adjustments constitutionally that people did with the law of sales and the law of torts? And if you're doing that, you're fine. But if on the other hand, you introduce a notion like there is in the National Labor Relations Act, you know, we think inequality of bargaining power is the greatest problem in America, no explication of it, and no idea of how it can survive when you get unique prices in a competitive market, then you're doing something wrong. And so the reason I think that Scalia took his position is he was so worried about the illegitimate extensions. But the price that he paid is he did not attack those kinds of issues where in fact a more principled and comprehensive originalism would have allowed him to do a lot more good. And let me just mention this following point. If he and all the other founding or judges had gotten the thing right on expenditure, you would never have the transfer payment world that John Cogan describes to you today. And so on that cheery note, I'm happy to take questions from you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.